This is a Solitude Media original podcast. Hello, welcome to the Galway podcast. This is Fender Jackson. This week's guest is Kleena Standun. Together with her sister Lara, they run Standun stores, which are in the heart of Connemara. I guess I was a bit reticent about interviewing shop owners or store managers and the like, as the episodes could be viewed as a kind of infomercial, and we all know how dry they can be. However, having recorded my first one, I kind of think that now it is essential for me to continue down this avenue. Why? Because of the threat of their existence and the critical part that they play in the fabric of our society. Plus, it's not too bad listening, actually. It's pretty funny. Very interesting. The Standard Store has got a vast history stretching back three generations and they were supporters of the indigenous arts of Ireland back at a time whenever this type of thing was not really thought of. Standon has been at the forefront of championing the iron sweater, for example, and other Irish-made products such as Waterford Crystal. At a time whenever stores are closing up and down the country, it is essential that we not only hold on to what we have left, but that we support them. My father, he lives in a small village up in County Derry called Draperstown. It's at the foot of the Sperrin Mountains, the Connemara of County Derry, if you will. And it's a thriving village. I have asked him, why does he think that this small community is doing so well whenever others are falling by the wayside? He explained very simply that it has a good restaurant. Restaurant. The good restaurant gives people a sense of purpose to go there. But there's also a few bars and a couple of clothes shops. A recurring pattern is that the men go to the bells, the bars, and the women go to the clothes shops. Then they meet up for a meal in the restaurant and then they go home or get a taxi or whatever they do. That's a very simple view, of course, but it can be argued that a fair chunk of the town's economy is being driven by that one restaurant. What would happen if that restaurant were to close? Goodness knows. So long may Aparo in Drooperstown continue to thrive. We are nearing the end of the year, and whilst editing this episode, I was reminded of that beautiful Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. I don't mean to draw parallels between Kleena and the protagonist George Bailey with regard to his desire to get away and his need to want to do something big and something important. Kleena seemed to have been singular in her determination to have wanted to work in the store. No, I was more reminded about how each person's life touches so many other lives. Kleena and Lara Standen employ more than 20 members of staff. That's every month, 20 salaries going out. That's an amazing amount of responsibility. And few of us really appreciate the connections and influence that Lara and Kleena have on the individuals that work there, their families and the wider communities. There's a bit of a sad part to this interview in that they are not feeling the support that they could be getting from the government. This podcast does not criticize much, but it does champion people. And if this podcast can affect change to the positive for people's lives, then it's all for the betterment of Galway and all that it touches. So anyone who can help influence the things related in this episode, please be my guest. Do something big. Do something important. Because Tina and Lara Standun are... I mentioned Kevin Burke in this interview as well. That's in the Parent Podcast, for any of you who have not come across it yet. The Ireland Podcast. You can look in your podcast player or in salthillmedia.com to search for the Ireland Podcast or search for Salt Hill Media. And you should be able to find it. Kevin is a master fiddle player who's played with the likes of Christy Moore, Andy Irvine, Paul Brady, and the Bossy Band, to name but a few. 
that's worth checking out. It's really good fun. Anyway, let's go straight to that conversation with Klina Standun. Rahim Janish. This is the Galway Podcast. Hello. Who are you and what do you do? My name is Klina Standun and I'm Managing Director of Standun, uh, which is a department store in Spittle and in Uchtaride, County Galway. Klina, thanks very much for coming in today. There's a history between my family and your family. Okay, that's very intriguing. <laughs> so your shop is a, is very old, mm-hmm. it'd be fair to say, comparatively speaking. And my mother used to go to your shop. Okay. So my mother's sister married a Galwegian. So she spent all her married life in Galway. My mother would come and visit her about four times a year. You know, and my mother and her sister were ladies of exquisite taste. Mm. So obviously they ended up in your shop many times and they were good friends with me. Okay. So that's the history there. And I was talking to my mother's sister's son, who's now a Thatcher in USA. Okay. That's his job. And he was suggesting I should talk to somebody from the Standoon family. Am I saying that right, Standun? Yeah, that's correct. That's exactly right. Okay. So he suggested I contact you. And so here we are. Okay. Hello, William. Thanks for putting this in touch. (laughs) So, yeah, let's go back to the start. How did the shop start? So my grandparents uh, were interned in Dublin. Um, my granny was in Mount Joy and my granddad was in the Curra. So just for anybody who's unaware what intern means, it means locked up for... Yeah, so they were supporters of the cause and they were um, Republicans. They were very interested in the Irish language and Irish culture. Um, my granny was a great musician And my granddad um, grew up in Liverpool in kind of probably uh, poverty in Liverpool. His dad died when he was uh, very young, so he was working from a very small age. So so they moved to Liverpool during the famine, I assume? um, Yeah, I'm not sure. It's a bit hazy, but I'm not sure when they they moved over there. Um, But they came from Lewisburg, County Mayo. And my great-grandmother, I guess, would have had three children on her own after her uh, husband passed away. And then my granddad moved to Dublin and I think he was um, supporting the cause and that's what got him into trouble. So they met because my granny, uh, or I would call her my momo, uh, was in... Mountjoy with my granddad's sisters and my granddad was in prison with my granny's brother and um, I guess that's how they met and then when they were released they, my granny uh, came down from Dublin to Connemara to visit her friend who lived in a thatch cottage in Spittle and uh, there was a small two-bedroom bungalow for sale next door. And I think my granny's friend was encouraging her to buy it. And so my granny went back to Dublin and told my granddad about it. And the two of them cycled from Dublin to Spittle to have a look at it. What? And, How long know, did that yeah. take? Uh, God knows. I presume they stopped on the way yeah. <laughs> overnight. Um, but they... Yeah, they cycled to Spittle, they had a look at it and they bought it for, I think it was £900 at the time. It's either seven or £900. Yeah. And they lived in the bungalow and they had a little shop in one room. And that was in 1946. And then they worked together to expand the business and it became a general country store in Connemara. So kind of a hub in Connemara for people to get anything from hardware to groceries, um, bicycles, Wellington boots, all the things that people needed at the time. And um, then I suppose um, in the 50s and 
60s. Can I pause Yeah, a maybe I've gone too no, far. No, 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 this is great. Yeah. This is great. I'm only interrupting because I'm interested to learn where they got seven or 900 pounds. Mm. My granddad was working for, I think, Fergal Quinn's father at the time in a grocery business called Pay and Take. I think that's what it's called. Um, so my granddad was working in Dublin and my granny would have come from uh, a, re a drapery background as well. So her family had a small drapery store in Mullingar. So I guess they gathered their money together and bought the shop in Spittle. Great, okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, carry on. And um, so... Yeah, so they were um, extending the business as they could and um, catering to the local local um, people's needs and people in Connemara. And it seems a bus used to come from Galway through Connemara, the Connemara bus, and it would stop outside the shop and all the chickens would be on the bus and um, all very exciting. But um, I'm very different to nowadays. But um, in the 50s and 60s, boards Trochdala were trying to encourage um, export to the US. And my grandparents were selling iron sweaters at the time that were knit by local people. So local and, people from Connemara? Yeah, or local Iron people Islands? from Connemara, yeah. Look, Connemara look. and the Iron Islands, Both. yeah. Okay. And so they were selling sweaters and they were quite a few tourists coming to Connemara. And then when uh, when there is this initiative to increase um, exports from Ireland, they got on board and they started to get, um, started to employ women around the country to knit the iron sweaters and they'd assemble them in the store. So they had a factory, an assembly factory in, on, so a sleeve, on site. So a sleeve would be knitted yeah. somewhere. I then. feel like all of the, so we, I've met a lot of the knitters over the, the years. They've come to visit the shop or their children have come in to us and said that their mother used to knit for us. And I feel the majority came from Donegal. It's always people from Donegal that I've met, but I know that the women, there were about 700 women around the country knitting for my grandparents. So the knitters were placed in, or sorry, they were um, located in Donegal or they were in Connemara having come from Donegal? No, sorry. the It was knitters from around the country. So yeah, they were knitting yeah. all over. All over the country. And, and would the sleeves have been knitted in one part and then the yeah. body somewhere mm -hmm. else? And then whenever you stitch them together, how could you be sure that they would match? Yeah, that was a big problem. So um, the the women would measure the parts of the sweaters by putting them up against their children. And women who had tall children would knit like taller sweaters. And the women with shorter children would send uh, shorter sleeves and bodies. So... But that's, that's, yeah. a move, that's a moving target because I, I met my uh, cousin's kid there the other day and I hadn't seen him in about a month and he had shot up in a mm. month, you know, so. Yeah, yeah and so it was a big challenge for them mm. because they were, you know, they were probably selling like sweaters, like one size fits all sweaters in yeah. the shop. And then when, um, when they started to export, they started exporting to... Nordstrom and Lord and Taylor, like big department stores in the US, and they were putting in orders for small, medium, large, extra large. So it was um, a huge kind of um, like it was like a big pressure and a big challenge for them at the time to bring in these sizing conventions. But my granddad used to travel around the country in his van and collect all the parts and bring them back to the assembly factory and there were women working there who'd sew them all together. Um, and yeah, there was a lady from Donegal who visited us in the last year and she was telling us some of the, like it sounded really stressful what they were dealing with where they got, um, you know, they were getting the sweaters kind of, they had to get the sweaters pressed and, um, you know, the sweaters were getting destroyed and there was lots of earnings and lots of different 
lots of different challenges I suppose they faced but um, they were very successful in being the first to export the iron sweater abroad and we're seeing now how famous the iron sweater is around the world which is amazing when you think of the iron islands such a small place in the west of ireland um but um so the standing family were the first to export, to export yeah. from ireland the iron sweater yeah correct wow yeah. and actually my mother-in-law just sent me a picture of her um of my nephew's um fifth uh, class history book and there was a page in it that mentioned my grandparents ex- being the first to export the iron sweater which we were delighted to see wow. um and yeah so, so uh, sorry to drill down into this area but um what era was it what what decade was so this that happening? was in the 50s and 60s wow. that they started exporting and then so then they had a mail order business which would have been kind of like the like pre-internet so they'd send out catalogs with pictures of all the products they were selling and then dodgy pencil drawings yeah Yeah. and people would fill in what they wanted and send it back with their address and probably their credit card number or check and um they'd fulfill the orders that way so that was like pre-internet days Mm -hmm. um so you know when people ask me when did we start selling online i kind of find it's so funny because it's always been something that we've done, although it wasn't in a in a website capacity, but the mail order business was there for like all the time I've known. Um, and then... And w- w- would you, as a kid, have been um, fulfilling the orders effectively? So when I was a teenager, I would have been p- packing orders. Mm. Yeah, but... The, the orders I was packing was um, people would come into the shop on tour buses. So we might have eight or 10 buses outside at a time. And people were going crazy that time. I guess that was in like the 90s and noughties. People were just going nuts. So like they were ordering Waterford Crystal and sweaters. They'd put in two big orders, one for sweaters for everyone in the family and one for Waterford Crystal. Wow. And... We, you know, we couldn't get stock and they were ordering things we didn't even have. And it was just all, all a bit crazy that time. You know, there was such an interest in buying things from Ireland and the people would gather up what they wanted. And they were the orders that I remember fulfilling. This is reminding me of a story of my grandfather. So my grandfather, my mother's parents they had a similar store but this is in County Derry uh, in a small village outside the city and um, my grandfather was a bit of a businessman and he, he heard that there was going to be a peppercorn shortage so what he did was he bought up all the peppercorns in Ireland this is a legend so I don't know how true it is mm. but my mother says that the whole house was just bales or whatever the collective mm. pronoun is of peppercorns so why this is coming into my mind is whenever I hear you talking about all these orders being shifted out, I'm having visions of running out of stock or you've got loads of stock everywhere, like under your bed and all the rest. Mm. Or did you have storage or how did that all work? Yeah, we had a, a big room, a mailing room where we call them mailings and um, a big room full of mailings and there'd have been things left on the shelves waiting for items left on the shelves waiting for part of the order to arrive in so similar to today you know the I I feel bad even being here right now because the girls who work in our online sales department are running around scrambling trying to fulfill orders at the moment yeah November and December are our busiest months overall, but uh, particularly in online, it's just um, they would be under a lot of pressure trying to fulfill orders. And um, it's the same thing where overnight everybody orders the same thing and then they come in in the morning and <laughs> they're, uh, you know, all of a sudden we need to place an order and get lots of stock in to fulfill those orders. So it was a similar situation, but so high value I suppose at the time where the it was you know it was Waterford Crystal and everyone was just you know looking for 
they would kind of take anything, you know, if you don't have the clock, I'll take the vase or the, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> the bowl. Um, but yeah, so it was a great environment to grow up in. Um, when I was uh, really small, like my own children's age, um, it was kind of like a playground. You know, people would, people working there would be creating houses out of cardboard boxes or wheeling me around in a trolley with a, a sheepskin rug in it and things like that. But then um, as a teenager, like or from, I suppose, the age of 10 upwards, it was, you know, a great kind of great place to work and like learn about working hard. And I got a real buzz out of working there when I was that age. You know, it wasn't a kind of a reluctant thing. I remember my mom saying, you know, they kind of were trying to restrict the hours that I would work. So they were, there was a summer where I wanted to work every day, all the days. And she'd say, you can work from nine until one, until you're whatever age, because you'll be working the rest of your life, which is so true. But, <laughs> um, but I remember all I wanted to do was work, work, work the whole time in there. And it's just a very exciting kind of dynamic environment to work in and um, meeting lots of people from all over the world. And, um, people who are coming back over the years and people who would have shopped there when my grandparents were there and then came back when my dad was there and then, you know, maybe their children would come back now. So, yeah. So the passion hasn't left you. You've always wanted to be there. Yeah. So, um, not every day, you know, (laughs) we, um, we just had a power surge at the weekend on Saturday, um, an ESB power surge and, on Saturday, everything broke, like the air conditioning, the alarm, two of the tills, our compactor, literally everything electrical broke down. And it was one, you know, a Saturday in December is one of our busiest days in the year. So days like that, I really don't feel like being there. But most of the time, it's very enjoyable. Do you know what my brother does? He's into renewables and Mm. he goes to organizations who are a bit like your size and makes them self-sufficient when it comes to solar energy and wind energy. Okay. So that's something you can think about Mm. for the future. Well, it's definitely something we need to look into next year because our bills have increased so much this year. I think our electricity has tripled. Yeah. So, and our, our rates have doubled. So it, it's definitely a challenging time for business. It's, um, you know, the, for, the same profit we have to work so much harder we mm. have to increase our sales so much just to cover the basic bills wow. so it's a very challenging time but well, what, um, what, what he does is he gets them off the grid so mm. so you you invest heavily mm-hmm. but then it starts paying for itself yeah that's great i must get his number <laughs> <laughs> he's up north <laughs> oh okay <laughs> yeah it's definitely becoming increasingly challenging and I would like I would really wish that the government would do more to support small businesses or small to medium-sized businesses because I just think Ireland might become a little bit like the UK where it's all about the high street shops and that the one-off shops won't exist anymore and you know, it's the it's the one-off small shops that are donating to every table quiz and every every fundraiser that happens in the village. Yeah. And you know, um, I think that that can be kind of forgotten sometimes. And I just feel that the the government need to like um, try to ensure that the businesses can survive. In what way can they support you? So what would be your message to a policymaker? Just there is, um, I mean, uh, there is the increased costs, you know, or... Um, lower rates, for example? Our rates, so our rates have, yeah, like, I mean, lower rates, lower VAT rate, um, uh, just like maybe incentives to... Um, help like um, employ people um and just more supports in general it's just you know our our electricity tripled Mm. this year which is huge um our rates um doubled nearly tripled as well and you know 
I mean, for our rates where we are, like, we don't even have street lights. <laughs> so it just feels, you know, like, what are we getting kind of for the rates? And um, then self-employed people. I'm not sure that there's much of an ince- incentive to be self-employed if, um, you know, if I get sick or if um, anything happens to the business, um all the employees will be looked after, but I won't. So they're the things that um, I, I don't think any of those things are going to happen. I feel very positive for the future, but it's definitely becoming increasingly harder to run a business in Ireland. There's um, a lot more paperwork, a lot more compliance, a lot more that has to happen other than just, you know, buying and selling. <laughs> mm, yeah. um, so it's making it difficult. And I'm seeing other businesses closing down and, um, I, and a lot of other business owners talking about the pressure of running a business. And I just, um, I just hope that it won't be left too late where a lot of the small businesses are gone. You know, when you see all the shop fronts, um, in little towns that used to be shops and they're all gone, it would just be such a shame if it was just supermarkets and high, high street stores. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I'm interested in more of the hearing more about the um, championing of the indigenous arts. So mm-hmm. the, there's the iron sweater knitting. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else? And the Waterford Crystal. And yeah. What yeah. It, at that time, Waterford Crystal was being um, hand blown in Waterford. And um, also Tweed was another um indigenous art I guess that Mm -hmm. they were um selling so people were coming in and buying you know the tweed in big pieces of fabric Mm -hmm. and I guess they would have gotten things um jackets and waistcoats made when they got home Mm -hmm. um but um and so, so they buy they buy the, the they buy cloth? kind of rolls of the cloth, yeah. Oh wow, and then mm. just go and make it themselves. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And so we would have had big rolls in yeah. lots of different colors. Yeah. You know, like kind of blue and brown, and people would buy, uh, you know, a few yards of it. Yeah. Um, also, I remember there being quite a lot of Irish lace as well being sold at the time, um, but not so much now. I'm, I'm pausing here because I'm thinking of uh, Balik pottery as mm-hmm. well. So in what way has uh, the fashions changed where, I mean, for, for example, everybody used to have porcelain dogs. Now you don't see them anymore. Mm. So how have they changed? And are people buying less or more or the same or the products have changed themselves? Yeah, the Waterford Crystal um, still kind of has that prestigious uh, name associated with it and people do like to buy Waterford Crystal as a wedding gift or a special occasion um, but when Waterford was made in Waterford it was um, I think that's when it was uh, very popular and then when they started to get it made in Europe it kind of lost its appeal a bit um, then on the other hand it's very um expensive to manufacture in ireland they you know the wage costs in ireland are so much higher than in other countries and um so i do see that um irish made products um it's just so much more difficult to source irish made products and for those businesses to survive Do you have a grandparent that you never met? Do you wonder what they were like? What type of life did they have? What type of person were they? How did they laugh? Both of my grandfathers had passed before I was born. So in 2006, when there was no signs of my children arriving anytime soon, I video interviewed both my parents. I asked them about their lives, the holidays they had, their parents, their grandparents. How did they meet? What did they do and what were they like? Where's their final resting place? Some time elapsed, my children did come along, 
And then my mother passed on, and yeah, sure I miss her, but I still have a video of her telling me about her life story. Now, I video interview other people's older relatives as a present for their loved ones. If you want me to capture your special memories, please get in touch at saltfulmedia.com. Thanks. This is the Galway Podcast. So you're saying there that uh, it's difficult to source Irish-made products. Is that because the costs have risen in terms of, I'm thinking, oil prices, energy prices, mm. etc.? Is it because the skills, uh, the people who are able to do those skills aren't in existence anymore, or is few, fewer of them? Um, what what What's leading to that? Mm, I think there is quite a... A number of factors affecting um, manufacturing in Ireland. So the cost of labor and then availability of people to um, employ in manufacturing. And um, then because of the costs involved in running a business in Ireland versus running a business in other countries, it affects the, the retail prices. And Although I do think customers are looking for something made in Ireland and they do want to support um, Irish businesses and Irish manufacturing, they are also very price conscious. So it um, it just it makes it very difficult if uh, a manufacturer is uh, making something at their kitchen table, but they decide, you know, like that they're going to get something manufactured abroad, it it obviously makes a lot more sense for them to get it made abroad cost-wise. So well, that, that makes it very challenging for them. What's going through my mind here is anytime I've relied on Google Maps to get me home, it's taken me sometimes up through the middle of Ireland, home being County Derry. Um, and driving through... The, the spine or up the spine of Ireland, my heart breaks a bit because you see all these shops boarded up. Mm. You see these um, small villages and there might be one shop and one pub remaining open. Mm -hmm. Is there, and I'm I'm hopeful and trying to find out ways in which we can support these villages. If someone was living in these villages and were to make something locally, and send it your way, would there be a market for that? Or yeah, I know it has to be the right price, the right quality and all mm. the rest. So I'm just thinking about, are you, are you finding it hard to source stuff that's uh, made in Ireland to such an extent that there could be a business for people in these villages? Um, well, we really do our best to support Irish made products and we do stock a lot of Irish made products um, and there is a demand for them, but they have to be competitively priced um, for customers to buy them. So that is the challenge. We have to, when, we, when we're buying them, we have to make sure that they're, you know, um, going to appeal to our customers and, and we have plenty of um, suppliers manufacturing in Ireland who really appeal to our customers and are very successful but I do think it's very challenging too and I'm not sure um, like my heart breaks when I see all the small villages and I also can't understand how there was a pub and a shop there and then another pub and a shop a kilometre down the road and now there now they're closed and there is only one pub and shop Mm. for like 50 kilometers, particularly in Connemara. Like there's so many um, derelict pubs and shops. And I just, I find it so hard to understand at one time there was a need for so many of them. And now Mm -hmm. there's, you know, there isn't the population um, I think it's a mixture of population and Amazon, yeah, um, and not just Amazon, you know, online supermarkets, yeah, yeah well, supermarkets, yeah. yes, yes. But it is, um, it it really doesn't make sense that the cities are, you know, overpopulated and then the rural areas are in decline. It really, it's so imbalanced. It's taken me back to the thought of people 
getting off the grid. And I, I, and I mean this in a self-sufficient way, you know, that um, mm. local farmers, because there's probably less, I don't know, I need to, I need to interview some economists to find mm. out, you know, what is the problem and what is the answer? Mm. And, and not just one, but many. So, yeah, I, that's on, they're on my list of people I'm approaching, actually. So um, yeah, tell me about the challenges of being in business in Spittle. Yeah, so I suppose I've always felt that if our business was in Galway City, we'd naturally have a footfall that Mm. we weren't generating ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, So it is very difficult, especially, you know, January, February, March and Spittle um, or on on days where there's weather warnings or ice. Not many people are traveling in that direction and there's also a shortage of accommodation in Connemara, so that makes it very challenging. Um, but we're also very lucky because, particularly since COVID, we have an awful lot of Irish support, both locally and um, nationally. Um, and we get a lot of people who visit us maybe two or three times a year. They might stay nearby and come and visit us regularly and um that you know really helps and then in the summer there we get a lot of tour buses a lot of french german um italians americans and they love connemara so they would be passing our door um but it's it's definitely um it, it is difficult to try and encourage people to come our way when we're 20 minutes from Galway City so people to me it's not fair I live in Spittle and you know coming into Galway it's 15-20 minutes it's not a big deal to me but maybe people who live in Galway City are more reluctant to travel out so um are are the buses still stopping outside your shop yeah, so we in the summer they do, in the winter there wouldn't be. And no. these are tour buses? Yes. Full of yeah. Americans, I'm thinking. So um, Italians, French, German, Americans, yeah, a mixture, yeah. mixture of different nationalities. And why are they stopping outside your shop? Is this just because they have done all these decades? Yeah, I think I think it's, uh, we've become known, thanks to my dad, we've become known as a tourist destination. And although that's changed over the last few years, we still cater to that market. So um, we have a name for being good value for buying iron sweaters, I guess, because we don't have the rent and rates that a shop in a a city would have. So um, I think the drivers um, like to bring the tours there. They they. find you know good variety good quality and good price so um yeah you mentioned your dad that's donal yes uh he took over in 1972 yeah 72 maybe 73 yeah yeah the reason why that number is sticking with me i'll not say my age and uh (laughs) is because um i was interviewing um kevin burke the fiddle player and that's whenever he was discovered okay Uh, so that's a important year for i guess uh Ireland (laughs) well certainly certainly for the people in my podcast lately um so tell me about what Donald did to establish your shop as a destination for these shoppers so my grandparents were running as I said a kind of a a general country store so groceries a butchers and ice cream parlor um hardware um, and then, you know, the odd tourist kind of brick and brack type thing. So that's what they were doing. And my dad just saw that um, the supermarkets were coming into Ireland at that time. And he saw that as quite a like a threat to the business. And he also saw the rise in tourism at the time. So he decided to focus on um catering to just the tourist market and getting rid of the grocery business altogether and my grandparents were not happy and he said that he used to overhear my granny on the phone to her cousin saying he's making such a big mistake but I think he had great foresight and um we 
probably wouldn't have survived if he hadn't made that move at the time. And did your grandparents live to see that? Yeah, def- yeah, they did. Yeah. And what did they say? Were they on the phone? <laughs> in my, our son, I'm we, sure we they, supported them yeah, all the way. I'm sure they didn't go back and say you made, you did a great job. I don't know. Maybe they did, but. Um, well, it's great to hear that his uh, daughter is seeing it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And he built like a strong business with a good reputation, as I said, for um, being a tourist destination. And um, people would um, travel over from America every year to visit and to buy gifts for their children. And then they'd, you know, order and mail order and all of that. So, yeah. And, and did was, Donal have business training or was this just a, a, like oh, a, a, a sixth sense that God, he had? I'm not sure. I know he studied um, in NUIG and um, he did, he, oh God, he'd kill me. Um, he was doing, he was trained as a teacher. Okay. Um, but I don't know that he ever did anything in business. I, but think, he, I think if he did, you would know about it. Yeah, probably. <laughs> but I know that he would always have been reading a lot of books okay. and like yeah. educating himself in that way and but I'm sure the best education one can get is on the shop yeah floor. exactly and he would have grown up in the business and um when my grandparents had it and um he would have traveled and um seen the world and then I think he took over at the age of 25 uh-huh. and so um yeah so he decided to focus on the tourist market and Standoon became synonymous with the iron sweater. Um, in his time, they won an award for being the best place to buy an iron sweater by the Wall Street Journal. Oh, wow. So that was really big at the time. And they were getting lots of orders um, for iron sweaters over the phone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, this was... Not so much pre-internet, but definitely early days internet. So I think it was like maybe um, like late 90s or maybe wow. 2000 um, when they won the award. And were, so, and were they then placing, or were you then placing ads in the Wall Street Journal? No, we weren't at all. They just, um, the Wall Street Journal called a few different businesses to order an iron sweater over the phone. Mm-hmm. And um, they picked the best quality the best um service and then the best overall and um or store won the best overall so they placed the order and they kind of rated the service that they got over the phone and then once they received the sweater they were kind of rating the sweater its quality the fit and the style so yeah it was really great we made a huge difference and um they got lots of orders on the back of that so the so customer we, we could do sorry. with winning another Wall Street <laughs> Journal best iron sweater, um, but um, yeah, it was great at the time. And did you place ads there after saying uh, winner of the? Of no, I don't think so. I don't think so. You could still deny. I'm not sure, sure that like we would have been able to afford an ad in the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. At, at that time, but. Maybe they did, but I don't know about it. <laughs> you can still die out and put some yeah. ads in there. Winner know. of the 1999 Wall Street. You don't have to put the date in, just, <laughs> just the, the title. So it's in your DNA as a shop, for that customer service, I assume. Is it, yeah, absolutely. Do you want to talk about that? I'm thinking about medicine from bench to bedside. So I don't know what the um, equivalent is in retail. So mm. from uh, from the inquiry through to the, the fulfillment. Mm. So do you want to talk about, um, yeah, just how you, how yeah, you handle so it? Yeah, so we grew up knowing that the customer was always came first. And so we'd come running into the shop and then we'd be told, you know, hush, hush, there's customers around. And, and I see myself doing the exact same with the children when I hear them coming into the shop and then I'm trying to put them into the office or somewhere because they'll be... Uh, very noisy but um they're not allowed to play in the in the in the boxes yeah they're like they do all of that um, (laughs) but they also have netflix on the the (laughs) office computer which we didn't have um but um yeah so my dad would have put a great emphasis on customer service that was very important to him and i think that i think that that was um 
became associated with the brand and um was very uh like i think a, a reason why the business was so successful under his reign at salt hill media we record the life stories of older people as a gift for their future generations we appear to be the only organization on the island of Ireland providing this service. What does that look like? An older person sits and answers questions about their life stories. For instance, what were their holidays like as children? Where did their parents meet? And what were their jobs? Where's their final resting place? And what about their parents? And so on. This is a perfect gift for people who hit another milestone. For example, a retirement gift, entering a new decade, a significant wedding anniversary, or it could just be a regular gift. The clever thing about this is that it is a time capsule to be enjoyed for future generations to come. Some people say, but my life story is not that interesting. It is interesting to those who follow after you. Other people remark, I could do this myself, we say, and so you should. However, more often than not, these life stories do not get recorded, so we advise that you go to salthillmedia.com and book a recording session for three months' time. If, in three months' time, your recording has not happened, then we will do that for you. Go to salthillmedia.com today to book your life recording. Thank you. This is the Galway Podcast. How much of your orders now are online and how much are footfall and how much are, um, what else is there? Yeah, so about um, 15% maybe of our annual turnover would be from online sales. So that sounds pretty low. I would have thought it'd be more. Yeah, it is. It's um, like the online, like it's growing every year and we have two full-time people employed in online sales. And then um, at the moment there is people coming in packing, just packing, packing, packing. (laughs) So there, there is, um, you know, this time of year we might have three or four people working in online sales. So it's, um, successful in itself and it's definitely growing every year um but you know I think because we're a destination store the sales in store is still very strong and um a lot of people like to ask me what I see the future of the business being that, when I was going to yeah, lo- everyone loves asking that question yeah. where do you see your future when retail is dead oh, no, what people like to ask. <laughs> but I suppose um I've thought about it a lot and um a few years ago I was trying to think how we were going to grow our business and um that's why in 2018 we opened a shop in Octorard and we felt that there was an opportunity for growth in another retail um location and we still see that being the case that we can grow um through different locations but um the there is growth um in in the online sales um and that has it's you know made up of customers who have never heard of our store who are like on the other side of the world never heard of us don't have a clue of anything about us and then also people who like our store and shop there regularly and they might do a click and collect for convenience or they might live in Dublin and they want to order their favorite products and so it's a big mixture but the future of retail I do think like I myself love to shop online because it's so much easier for me um, especially because life is so busy but I see our customers they want to um, they want the personal touch they want to come in and ask for advice on 
maybe the dress that they're trying on or the top they're trying on or how to choose between different rain jackets, which one is, you know, more uh, waterproof or which one washes better. Um, They want advice on what gift to get somebody. So um, both kind of the advice, the interaction, and then our store in Spittle is like, it's a destination store. There's a cafe. So we find a lot of people come out for like kind of make a day of it. Mm -hmm. There's parking at the door. So it's very convenient, particularly for children or for older people. There's no um, dealing with car parks or putting a ticket on your car. You just pull up at the door, go in, um, have a wander around, have a cup of tea. It's kind of sociable. So that's, I think, how I think our business is surviving in a world where like, you know, people are shopping online more. Mm. That um, And people have been asking me that question for about five or six years, maybe more, I think in 2015. Retail will be dead. Well, you know, people like to ask, like, what... Um, what's the future of your business when okay. retail is dead? You know, I and, never heard that before. Yeah, people ask that a lot, but it's just um, our business has grown every year since yeah. 2015, and I think it is just that you know it is very convenient to shop online, but it's it's like in addition, it's not yeah. um, instead of going into a shop. I think people also want. A memento of an experience. Mm. I'm just having visions of my mother and her sister uh, being at your shop that day out, having a beautiful time together. You know, my mother traveling down from County Derry and hanging out with her sister and wanting a memory, um, a tangible physical object that they can hold on to and cherish that memory with. I know this because my mother, God, she she loved her shopping, you know, mm. Um have you any plans to open up a store in Galway City? No. <laughs> <clears throat> no, I I feel like um, Galway City is um, quite competitive and already. And um, I can't see that we would bring anything unique to Galway City. And I I don't I, I don't see that as um, I, I think or business is a destination store it's um in a place you know where people are are going to so in Uchtarard people are coming to Connemara people are wandering around Uchtarard village or they're visiting Clifton and they stop by and the local people really support the shop there and um people from Galway city will go to Uchtarard to have lunch and powers and maybe pick up um, some sourdough bread and Sullivan's and, um, you know, maybe go and walk in Clannan Woods and they'll stop in and pick something up. But, um, the two shops, they're destination stores and I just can't, I don't think that they would work in a shopping center and I don't think they would work in Galway city. Um, and just, I suppose it's, it's the the convenience of shopping in um, in standing is you know one of the the key kind of um, qualities or features um, that people like about it. So yeah, so I, I don't see the future in Galway City. Okay, <laughs> I was just looking at the CBD store. That there's a little kiosk in one of the shopping malls and. It's empty, so uh, oh. you could go in there and hang up a few um, hats. Well, and- <laughs> our problem is though we have. You know, the shop in Spittle is like 10,000 square foot. Uh-huh. And even when we open the shop in Uchtarard, it's 2,000 square feet. And we find it so difficult to narrow down our ranges to fit into that shop. So yeah. <laughs> um, so a kiosk definitely wouldn't work. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice problem to have. Um, do you have plans to open up other stores? Yeah, definitely in the future we'd like to, Yeah. And the right opportunity still comes up. within County Galway, or um, I'd be open to looking at outside of um, County Galway. Yeah, cool. Yeah, you keep your cards close to your chest. Eh? Yeah, well, we'll wait and see what happens. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, 
iron sweaters. Now, whenever I was a kid, I, my mum, she bought me and my siblings, um, my siblings and I, an iron sweater each. I remember it being itchy. Mm-hmm. Are all iron sweaters itchy or is something changed that they're no longer itchy? And what is that? So most of the iron sweaters that we sell are made from merino wool. And merino wool is really soft. It's gorgeous. You so can define, wear it against your skin. It. So merino wool would, um, it's a softer wool and it comes from sheep, maybe in the south of Ireland or maybe um, France. So the... If you think of the sheep in Connemara where they're roaming around on the mountains and they're very exposed, their wool is very coarse. Mm -hmm. And then that that wool is what we would know as the old iron wool. That's what people would have worn um, to keep the rain out and keep them warm and dry. And they really worked. They were like, um, someone told me they were used as wetsuits in um, the 60s before there were wetsuits in Ireland because the wool from the sheep naturally contains an oil called lanolin. So lanolin would keep the rain and the wet out and it would keep the person nice and dry and probably quite moisturized <laughs> as well. But um, nowadays the lanolin is extracted from the wool. Um, but um, most of the sweaters we sell are made from merino wool and it's really soft and you can wear it, it Normally, I have two iron sweaters that I wear regularly. One is a crew neck and one is, we call it a lumber. It's like a cardigan with two pockets. Um, They would be two of the traditional styles. And I love them both, especially when the weather is cold, you put it on and it's like wearing a coat. But I would usually wear something underneath, um, like a little top. Um, But the merino wool, you could wear against your skin. It's that, it's soft it's not itchy at all but we do sell the old iron wool sweaters as well and these would be very heavy and itchy but some people love them so and are they warmer they would be warmer i would feel like we probably don't get the climate to warrant wearing something so warm um however the last few days (laughs) have been quite cold and um but we get a lot of people who love wearing them because they are so warm. And then people from colder climates like to order them as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, so there's basically two, two types of iron sweater. There's the one that's made from the old Irish or old iron wool. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're made from wool from Connemara. And then the merino wool, wool which is much softer. And you can just and tell by touching them. Yeah, you could. Like one is just so like coarse and it's um and then um we also sell hand knit sweaters and machine knit sweaters. Okay. So the hand knit sweaters are still um hand knit and they take about three to four weeks to make one. So loads of work goes into them and um not many people are hand knitting anymore. Um but the um you can you can really tell there's like so much wool in them and they're really heavy um but um they are you know there are um hand knits made from merino wool so they're not necessarily itchy and then there's the machine knit sweaters and eight to ten sweaters can be made by machine per day so they'd be nearly half the price of the hand knit sweater so i'm thinking whenever you're saying hand knit um that's a job somebody in the Spain of Ireland could do if they're. Yeah, know. absolutely. It's just so few people would be willing to do them because they, you know, like they, they can only charge a certain amount for them. And um, I think knitting's kind of like, well, I know that there is some kind of revival, but I feel like people knit small things, you know, like hats and scarves, but yeah. like there's a lot of work goes into knitting an iron sweater. Like it's yeah. a big commitment, like. A month knitting one sweater. Yeah. It's a lot. So. There's definitely, it's definitely um, an opportunity there for somebody who's, I'm just thinking about raising a family and maybe they're watching TV. You know, the yeah, if they're that good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, that was the thing in the 50s and 60s for my grandparents. It was a time where when women got married that they could no longer work um, 
outside the home. Mm. And so it was a great earner for them where they were able to stay at home, mind the kids and, and knit and earn a little bit of money as well. So it was a great source of employment at the time where there was like very little else that they could do. Um, yeah. Whereas mm. nowadays, you know, both, both parents are out working and it's all different, but yeah, in those days, I think, um, it was, it was great for families to, um, to have that additional income. How does one care for one's iron sweater? One does not put it in the washing machine for a starter. <laughs> um, hand washing a cold and using wool light would be the advice that we would give. And to just mind it because it's a, na- a natural fabric. Mind it? What do you like, mean by that? Look after it. Okay, so... Uh, like, you know, not to like scrub it vigorously, but just, you know, okay. gently wash it. Like a basin of cold water, put some wool light in and gently wash it. What's wool light? No. It's um like a kind of detergent. So it's a, it's a detergent specifically for hand washing wool items? Yeah, wool, for wool, li- wool items. Yeah. Jeepers. Um, and then what about um, these modern washing machines that actually have a wool setting? Are they any mm-hmm. good for... Yeah, like I think it's a little bit like... like you can try it and it's just taking a bit of a risk. Uh-huh. And some people put an iron sweater or something delicate into a pillowcase and yes. they put it into the washing machine on the hand wash cycle. Yeah. But it is, um, the thing is with the iron sweaters, they're not, you know, you're generally they're not like really dirty and stained. People kind of wear them like a jacket. So you're not washing it very often. Yeah you're usually wearing something underneath. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I think I personally personally would wash it by hand in a basin of water, lie it to dry flat. I was going to ask about drying. Yeah. So how, how do you dry Just in the sunlight or something? Um, yeah, and like I would lay it out flat in its shape, you know, mm. as opposed to hanging it yeah. so it doesn't stretch. And um, in a warm room, I guess, yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're coming to the end. I'm aware of your time and um, I'm very grateful of your time because um, we're just before Christmas and you must be flat out. So is there anything you would like to say? Um, I'd like to say hi to all of the wonderful team in Standings. Um, every single one of them is absolutely amazing. I love them all to bits and they're just all like such kind people, um, all very hardworking and it's not always easy, particularly this time of year. Um, people can be very impatient and stressed out. And, uh, my team are working during the festive period and, um, it's, um, they're dealing with all sorts of every, everyone's problems. So, um, I'm so grateful to work with them. I work with them every day and I'm so grateful to work with such, such lovely people. Um, I don't think we could find a better team. And um, I guess, you know, it's the people that um, that customers come back to see and they always ask about the different team members where they are and, um, you know, do they have a day off or are they on holidays? And that's really nice as well. So, um and I guess I should probably mention my sister, who I don't think I've mentioned yet. Lara. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so my um, my sister Lara and I both run the business together um, for over 10 years. And um, we work really well together. Uh, we both have completely different strengths and weaknesses, um, which is actually we're, we're blessed because what she's good at, I'm horrendous at and what I'm good at I feel she has less interest in so um it works really well and um we're very lucky to have a good working relationship because um you know that it can be difficult in family businesses I guess it makes it easier that there's only two of us um you know we don't have any other siblings so um yeah we're very lucky you are you are Mm. and I should say also whenever I phoned up the organization 
I asked for you and you weren't around. Um, I don't know, you were obviously busy. And um, I was talking with Lisa. Mm. And I told Lisa the story of my mum coming and, okay. and, be, and being in the shop and knowing Marching in May. And she said, that's a lovely connection. Aww. And I felt, oh, this lady's actually listened to me. This is Aww, good. Lisa's so lovely. <laughs> yeah. and, and whenever you're saying about the DNA, the um, customer service being in the DNA of the family mm. business, I felt that was, was Lisa talking to me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. she's... She's great. <laughs> um, we love her so much. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's just, a, it's a great team. And um, How many everyone, are there? There's about 20. Wow. 20, 22 between full-time and part-time, um, between both shops and online. So um, we'll all be getting together now on Saturday night for a Christmas party. Yeah. So that's really nice because... I guess it's just once a year that everyone gets together yeah. um, once or twice a year, depending. But um, yeah, it's nice. And as I said, this is, you know, December, November and December, the busiest months. Mm. And that's the difficulty with retail that it's so, you know, weighted on those mm. two months and and full on and around, you know, Christmas week, right up to five o'clock on uh, Christmas Eve it's full-on busy um, so um, it's nice that we'll all get together and celebrate this Saturday night. Do you know that's 20 salaries every month and I, mm. I know the pressure that um, any managing director endures for that no, not personally uh, but uh, you know I'm, I'm cognizant of it and you know this podcast is all about being a champion of champions, um, as I said to you before, off mic, and um, it's you're a champion. You know, you're 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 not just providing um, support for that those twenty individuals, but all their families and mm. everybody connected to them. You know, um, has got a has got a little connection to you. So yeah, good on you. And oh, long, long may the shop continue and long may uh, your, your family continue to run it should they want to. I know, should they want to is the question. Yeah. You said earlier that your mother, your grandmother was a musician. Yes. What did she do? What did she play? So she play, played the fiddle and the piano. Oh. Yeah. And my dad would be very musical as well. And what my did, aunt. And what does yeah. your dad play? My dad plays the banjo and my aunt plays the fiddle as well. Are they known in the... Yeah, they would be known, yeah. My aunt will be... Who's well, your aunt then? So my aunt is Dervil Standing and she um, she was in a band called Thordon and they would have travelled quite a lot um, playing Irish music. Yeah. That's brilliant, yeah. Long may that continue as yeah. well. Is she still doing it? Like she would play at different... Events. Festivals and weddings and different things, yeah. That's brilliant. She's very talented. Well, uh, GADs to Gactinia. Okay, so we'll stop there because I'm aware of your time, as I said. So, Goran Mila Mayalgut. Falsirut. Foil. Slan. This has been a Salt Hill Media original podcast and production.